following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people, and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer, and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's, directions, or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. Today's reading is from 1 Kings, chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, and this can be found on the page 337 of the New Church Bible. So that's 1 Kings, chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Solomon asks for wisdom. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter, He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gideon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gideon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, You have made your servant king in place of my father, David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honour, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, 
and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, as we try to explore your word and hear your message to us, open our hearts that we may hear whatever it is you have for each of us this day. Amen. So, good morning. After a couple of weeks of breaking for gift day and remembrance, we're back, as David said, on our sermon series on the root of Jesse. We've moved on from the books of Samuel, which were mostly telling the story of King David, and we've now reached the first book of Kings. So today's reading, as you just heard, starts with Solomon on the throne. But I think we've missed something out, which is that transition from David to Solomon. Now, when I first read this, I went back and read the beginning of 1 Kings, and chapter 2 tells us about that transition. And as I was reading it, I found myself immediately thinking of a film that I saw a long time ago. Has anyone seen The Godfather? A few of you have. It's almost 50 years old now, but, and it's an extraordinary film. And it brought to mind a particular scene. There's a scene called the baptism scene. It's one of the most famous scenes in cinematic history. And essentially, the story is about this. Bear with me for a moment. You may think this is weird. I was kind of embarrassed that I read this and think read the Bible and the thought of the Godfather. And then I read a commentary by one of the great Old Testament scholars, Walter Brueggemann. And he said, you know that bit about Solomon? It reminded me of the Godfather. So I thought, there you go. So I'm in good company. And he was a bear with me. In this, in this film, the Godfather, or a mafia boss, Don Corleone, played by Marlon Brando in one of the, the absolute scenes of his career, has been ruling the, the, the world for a long. He's then killed. He's betrayed and attacked by his rivals. And the family all gather for his funeral. And then a key moment, the scene switches from, from death to life, from funeral to a baptism. The baptism of the granddaughter of the Don, the, the, the baby of Connie, one of his, one of his children. And we see standing at the baptism, it's an elaborate scene of a kind of Catholic baptism. This is, this is, this is an Italian, American-Italian family. And we see Michael Corleone, who is going to be the next taking over from his dad as the next dawn. And he's standing as godfather to this baby. And then the scene cuts between that, because what Michael has done is arranged to avenge his father. So he's sent out on a single day his henchmen soldiers to kill all the people who betrayed his father and the heads of all the other mafia families. And the scene then cuts between the baptism and the murders. So we see Michael standing there, the priest speaking the words, baptizing the child, and then saying to Michael, do you reject Satan and all his works? And Michael says, I do. And then we cut out to see what's going on. And we see the heads of all the other mafia families being taken out. Stracci is shot in the lift. Cuneri is in a revolving door. Mo Green's receiving a massage and he's shot. Tatali is murdered in bed. Barzini is gunned down on the steps of the Supreme Court of New York. And finally, we cut back to the baptism with the priest saying, Go in peace and may the Lord be with you. Amen. And Michael's there holding a candle. Now, you may wonder what's happened, but basically, in taking out his enemies and rivals, Michael has avenged his father and shored up his own position as the new mafia boss. Now, in chapter 2, Solomon has basically done something pretty similar to that. Because 1 Kings begins at the tipping point between two eras, the end of King David, the beginning of of King Solomon. But when it's becoming clear David's at the end, it's not immediately clear who will take over. 
David's other son, Adonijah, makes a bold early bid for the throne to get it for himself. But the prophet Nathan gets wind of this and hatches a plot of his own. And his aim is to get Solomon instead installed as king, which he basically does by manipulating the failing old King David. Now, if you haven't read One Kings recently, really go back and have a read. It's it's a great read. But at risk of, of offering spoilers, basically Nathan's plan works. So Solomon ends up on the throne. David declares that Solomon will succeed him and orders he be anointed king and put on his own throne. And as the word spreads that this is happening, those who had already rather prematurely gathered to celebrate Adonijah's rise to power leg it as fast as they possibly can because now he's not going to be king and Solomon is. So now here Solomon is king. But before he died, David gave a charge to Solomon, telling him how to rule Israel. The first part is clear. He says, be obedient to God. Follow the law in all respects. The second part is perhaps more passion than prudence, as he tells Solomon to honour his own debts, for good or for ill. So Walter Brueggemann describes the dying King David as someone of deep contradictions. Caught, he says, between the clear claims of faith and the obvious requirements of raw power. And characters throughout kings display that tension, including Solomon, as we shall see. So the second part of David's charge was to tell Solomon how to deal with the people he, David, had engaged with when he was king. So he says, Joab and Shimei, they wronged me, so make sure they don't die peacefully in their beds. But Barzillai of Gilead, he was good to me, he stood by me, so be nice to his sons. So then we hear what's happened. We're not told, I have to say, if Solomon was indeed kind to the sons of Barzillai. But we are told that he had Shimei banished and later killed. Joab had not only wronged David, but he'd been part of the attempt to put Adonijah on the throne, as had the priest Abiathar. So Solomon banishes Abiathar and he has Joab killed, even while he's holding on to the altar of the Lord. And after another sharp move on his brother's part, Solomon has Adonijah killed as well. And the final words of chapter 2 are, the kingdom was now established in Solomon's hands. Indeed it was. And that's where today's reading begins. So we're told at the outset that Solomon has made an alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and married his daughter. Now, that's a bit of a shock in Old Testament terms. Marrying foreign women is basically disapproved of in the law of Moses. And this isn't just any foreign woman. This is the daughter of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the symbol of oppression and slavery of all that had done for Israel in the past. But we're reassured in verse 3 that Solomon loved the Lord and obeyed his laws, or most of them. And of course, we can see his piety demonstrated in verse 4 when we hear Solomon went to offer sacrifices at Gibeon. Now, as well as being a prominent worship spot before the temple was built, Gibeon had also been the site of clashes between supporters of David and Saul. So it's quite possible, we're told, that in sacrificing there, Solomon is also asserting his role as legitimate king. But no one can doubt his piety. Look at the scale. A thousand burned offerings. Go in peace. Amen. But that night, God visits Solomon in a dream. Now, of course, dreams then were not seen as just nighttime imaginings or the product of too much cheese. This was seen to be God entering into the world of a human being at a time when humans couldn't resist. You couldn't make up your own dreams. You can't stop someone talking to you in a dream. So therefore, it had extra authenticity. 
And in that dream, God says to Solomon simply, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Ask for whatever you want me to give you. I'm going to pause and ask you three questions today. The first one is, if God appeared to you and said, ask for whatever you want me to give you, what would you ask for? Take a moment to think about that. If God came to you in a dream, what shall I give to you? What comes to mind? Okay, hold that thought. We're going to come back to it. Now, for Solomon, for any king at the time, the obvious choice, if you're asked that question, would be wealth and power over your enemies. So what does Solomon ask for? Well, first off, he doesn't just drive straight, dive straight in with his Christmas list. He says, no, no, first he reminds God of his kindness to David. And then he stresses his own humility. It was the Lord who put him on the throne. In verse 7, he says, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. And God had indeed to promise, promise to put the son of David on the throne of Israel. Though I know Solomon doesn't mention the henchmen taking out the rivals at this point, but it was all this was God. Then Solomon stresses he knows nothing. He's a little child. Now, he doesn't mean literally he's a child. He'd actually fathered his own child by this point. But he's saying that he doesn't know how to do the job he's been given. Now, I've seen people fight for power or leadership positions, only sometimes to get there and have a moment of panic. What will they do now? Are they up to this role they fought so hard to get? And maybe Solomon's in that position? He's just lost his father, the great king of Israel, the great King David, the man who killed Goliath, who beat the Philistines, who united the tribes of Israel, a warrior and a musician and a poet, a man after God's own heart. And now Solomon's taken over. They're big shoes to fill. This is taking over Man United from Alex Ferguson, taking over the BBC Break 2 Breakfast show from Terry Wogan. This is a big job to have to take over. And Solomon has no military or governance experience. How's he going to manage? So he confesses his vulnerability and need, and he asks for God's help. Verse 9, so give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? So Solomon has to govern the people of Israel, and that's a role that would include being a religious leader, a military leader, a political leader, and a judge, all rolled into one. So he asks God to give him what he needs to do the job well. That discerning heart, Walter Brueggemann translates from the Hebrew, he thinks a a better translation is a, a hearing heart or an obedient heart, because the key job of any king of Israel was to lead the people of Israel in the way of the Lord. Because if the king walks in the way of the Lord, then the Israel will follow him and everybody will flourish. But if the king wanders from the path of the Lord, so will Israel and disaster will befall them as has happened so many times before. So the prayer is not just to be clever or discerning, but to be attuned to God's will and God's ways. It's an understanding that justice is really about the proper ordering of the world around its center, which is God. Now, God is pleased with Solomon's request, so he gives him both what he asked for and what he didn't ask for in wealth and honour. And scholars point out that wealth and honour are tangible evidence that God is going to bless the reign of Solomon. Those are given to him outright, 
but only, it's we're told, he will get long life as well, but only if he observes the law as his father David did. In other words, this isn't a one-time deal. It's not the fairy story where you get to, you're granted a wish and then you live happily ever after. It's great that Solomon knew enough to know he needed to ask God for, for help to do the job he'd been called to. But he has to keep making use of the gift he's been given, to keep hearing and obeying. Another scholar, Lissa Ray Beale, translates this, which in a way I love, as a listening heart. And listening is a feature of wisdom literature. A heart that listens to God will lead a life attuned to God, and the nation will follow the king in walking in his ways. So up until now, Solomon's been clever. He's shored up his throne by seeing off his rivals and forming an alliance with Egypt. He's done all the right things. He's sacrificed to God. He's not stinted on the burnt offerings, a thousand of them. So he's granted divine wisdom. But we'll find out later in the book, and later in our sermon series, if he always acts according to it. Because Solomon is a complex character. Like it must be said, his father before him. But God can use, just as he used David, can and does use Solomon and other flawed people to work out his purposes in the world. And by long understanding of the church, somehow this third king, King Solomon, is moving things along in an arc that will point ultimately to the one true unflawed king who is going to come and rule the world. So what does all this mean in a rather damp Durham Sunday morning? Well, it's not a straight read across, of course. The, the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, is not a morality book for us to draw from. But there are questions it prompted in, in my heart when I read it, and I wonder if they speak to you as well. Starting with, what would it look like for you to have a listening heart, a heart attuned to God? Now, I think we all instinctively act like Solomon in trying to trust God and yet acting to secure all our borders, nail everything down, remove the uncertainty, make sure everything's all okay. Now, prudence is fine, but we must never forget that we have a deeper calling to realise our utter dependence on God for every breath we take, for every gift we've been given, and to realise, and this is wisdom, that God's ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. But a listening heart has to be grounded in that sense of vulnerability. And a listening heart has to be open to hearing the unexpected. To hear perhaps that something we are totally convinced we're right on, maybe not in fact be right. I struggle with this, as you might imagine. I'm a politician. But sometimes we listen out. We may have to be willing to listen willing to hear that maybe our priorities are not God's priorities. So could I ask you to maybe spend some time this week sitting before God consciously with a listening heart? It may only be ten minutes, but just sit somewhere quiet and pray. And if you don't know what to pray at that moment, a dear friend of mine is very fond of a prayer that was given to her by her spiritual director, a very holy woman. She said... I used to sit there and say, hello God, here I am, what a mess. And then listen. Now you may have your own much holier prayers than that, but if you don't, hello God, here I am, what a mess, followed by a period of listening, it's a pretty good way into prayer. And if you're doing that and some thought pops up in your head, 
especially if it's not something you would have expected to think, then pray that through. Hold it and pray it through and just see what God might be saying to you. My final question for this morning is, what would it look like if God granted you a truly listening heart in relation to other people? Because one of the most powerful human experiences is to be truly listened to. You know it when you see it. You know when you have someone's attention wholly focused on you. Someone's wholly present to you, really listening to you. We recognise that when we hear it. And it's powerful, partly because it's a powerful human need to be properly heard, to be seen and known. So listening like that is a deeply relational act, it's a, and it can be an act of deep healing. And I think yeah, that can be one of the hardest things when a close relationship goes, whether it's bereavement or divorce or relationship breakup, or if you lose a dear friend or a relative, someone who knew you as nobody else did. It can even be the case if you leave a place you've lived in for a long time, where you had friends who knew you, and you go to a new place where nobody really knows you. Maybe for a new job, or to study, or to be with your family. Maybe you simply outlive your friends. Earlier this year, a lovely woman I know, who'd been widowed, decided to move into a new home in a different town near her son. She's got a great flat and a really delightful complex, and she's made some lovely new friends. But she laments the fact that none of these new friends ever knew the man she was married to for 64 years. So they didn't know any of her history. They didn't know her. They didn't really know her as she really was. And to be truly known and loved anyway, whether by another person or by God, is the greatest healing gift any of us can be given. We're transformed by love and attention. So could you practice deeply listening to someone as though you truly had a listening heart. Maybe somebody you wouldn't normally listen to, someone you perhaps find it hard to like, maybe someone you just find quite boring, or maybe somebody that you really don't agree with over something important, like Brexit, or how you're going to vote in the election, or how the church really ought to be run. It might be just something you could do. Could you listen? And as you listen to them, could you imagine how it would feel to be God looking at them, loving them, loving them so much he'd do anything for them, loving them so much he has done everything for them, and then somehow let them feel that they're being loved, he's loving them through you. Before I finish, let's go back to my first question. What did you think you would ask God to give you? Whatever it was, big or small, even if it feels impossible, I want to say two things about it. One is reflect on what that's saying about where you are at the moment. And the second is just lay it before God. Ask him for it anyway. Not because he'll necessarily grant the specifics of what you ask. He may, but that isn't how prayer works. It's not a slot machine. But if you lay that deepest need before God, the God who knows you and loves you, who has the ultimate discerning heart, then God will hear you. Because God knows what you yearn for. He knows what underlies that prayer. He knows what you most yearn for. He knows what you're most afraid of. He knows what you're scared of at three in the morning when you don't really want to admit it. 
and it pops up in your anxiety dreams. That's just me, huh? God deeply knows that. And if you can trust him with that, trust him with that need, then you will find that he blesses you as you need to be blessed. And that's all we can ask for. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St. Nick's Durham podcast. If you'd like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St. Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.